This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Walentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we're talking about the Library of Congress. So grab your rapid transit literary line. And let's get civical. everybody hello everyone welcome back to let's get civical i'm lizzie stewart and i am arden walentowski and today we're doing something very fun something we've talked about doing for a long long time books 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 we have to have them we're going to the to the capital of books Capital of books, but also movies and music and documents true. and lots of yeah, things. Yeah, I forget about the other stuff. Yeah. But that's actually, that's true. Like, mm-hmm. significant works to America and yeah. American culture and identity yeah. is locked up in this little castle. Can you imagine having something of yours be considered... As having a place in the Library of Congress. It's truly what I aspire to. I think I would poop my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, oh, what? <laughs> like, I would, I what would, a crazy thing. I know. It's crazy. I would hope that, like, like, I wonder what their parameters are for, like, movies and TV shows. Yeah. And, like, books that are good books but not pertinent to american history or politics or civics mm-hmm. you know what i mean like mm-hmm. what's their standard like you have to have an oscar and a and a and a golden globe and then yeah that yeah, particular yeah. movie like, ha- can be entered into the library of congress because that's what we're talking yeah. about today yeah we're talking about library of congress obviously yeah i do wonder what the like how do you determine right what has cultural significance right to American culture. Like, is it, you know, sales? Is it tweets? Is right. it, like, 
like and who who did like how who? you know what is the selection process whom among the library of congress right. gets to decide hey do you know what has cultural significance? The Broadway musical King Kong. It should be submitted to the Library of Congress. This is my this is my platform mm-hmm. to put forth the nomination of King Kong the musical <laughs> into the Library of Congress. That is what this whole episode is about. Maybe it's one I- of those very special interns and you could get an internship and then submit your own suggestion which is of course king kong on broadway king kong on broadway and then and you know honestly like maybe this is my next move yeah is to just forget everything else and and focus on the task at hand which is getting king kong on broadway submitted into the library of congress as a piece of art that has cultural significance to america and americans alike i think you should start a change.org petition you're right. And and I will. And mm-hmm. and I will. I think you should do that. I love that. Yep. So that's what we're going to be doing. That's what I'm doing. Good, goodbye, everybody. I have work to do. Uh, <laughs> see you next time. <laughs> Arden's now going to drown alone doing this episode. Yeah, she's just going to read the notes. Read the notes. <sighs> goodbye. And then Good. hang up. No. <laughs> Click. And goodbye. No, no. I would never. I would never leave. I would never leave because obviously oh, – yeah. You need somebody as good as research as I to read oh these notes and read them incorrectly most of the time. I would I would absolutely drown. It would just be me going, the Library of Congress is housed in three buildings on Capitol <laughs> Hill. I would have it would be the most boring thing in the world. You would be reading it correctly, too, is the <laughs> thing. Like there would be no mistakes. And that's not why our listeners come. Our listeners no. come to hear me truly not know how to read that's why that's why we're all gathered it's why we're all gathered here today we're also gathered in the event that we talk about some hot assassin because you never know when they're gonna pop up never know when they're gonna pop up and you never know if an assassin is gonna be hot or not and it is a waste of a good assassin to have a not hot assassin we've had some not hot assassins mckinley's assassin not hot not hot not hot hot. bummer no bummer Huge waste. I mean, that he was assassinated and that also yes. his assassin was not hot. Yes. You know? Yes. So with that said, we'll see if an assassin comes up today. Who knows if it will or not. Maybe not. It's Library of Congress. Anything is possible. Anything is possible. But Maybe we'll I come say, across a book burner. Exactly right. We could come across a book burner. We'll find out. Yeah. We'll find out. But before we hop in, do you want to talk about today's sources? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Sure, sure. So these notes are coming from history.com, the Library of Congress, but obviously. Obviously. And a nice little website called DCIST, like Washington, D.C., I-S-T. List.com. I-S-T. Yeah. DCIST. All right, so let's start off with a question that is on everybody's mind, which is, uh, what is she? What? What is she? What is the Library of Congress, if you haven't heard of it? And that's totally fine. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what she is. She is a bitch. She's a lover. She's a child. She's a mother. She's a sinner. She's a saint. She do not feel a thing. Okay. No. Here we go. (laughs) Library of Congress. The Library of Congress, housed in three buildings on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., 
is the research library of the U.S. Congress and is considered the National Library of the United States. So this is the the HQ of libraries. It is the USPL, the United States Public Library. It is also the largest library in the world with a collection of more than 170 million items. Okay, go off. Size matters, Mm -hmm. you know? A granite building with a golden torch topping its dome, the Library of Congress is tucked just to the east of the Capitol. Its ornate gingerbread exterior, as FDR reportedly once described it, and elaborately decorated interior are meant to celebrate the many rich literary treasures found inside. I love this idea of FDR, God rest his soul, looking at this building and going, a gingerbread house. <laughs> yum, yum. <laughs> yum, yum. Can't Make you see it? a piece of that Library of Congress. The icing is piped right here with a candy cane. Right here. Do you see the gumdrops? The gumdrops? <laughs> Do you not see? On the, on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, she's she's gorgeous. We passed we pass mm-hmm. by her. We, we passed her. She's lovely. She is. Look. Yep. She is a regal building. She is. As she should be. Yes. So let's talk about how the Library of Congress was bestowed upon us, how we acquired yes. her. So the library, the story of the Library of Congress began in 1800 when President John Adams approved a congressional act that moved the national capital from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. As part of that bill, a sum of $5,000 was earmarked for books intended for use by the U.S. Congress. So like, we've got a bill on goats. We need to do some research on goats. We don't have Mm -hmm. the Internet yet. Let's go to the book on goats. We have to find the book on goats. We find the book on goats. Under Adams' immediate successor, Thomas Jefferson, Congress passed another law under which the United States president appoints someone to the official post of librarian of Congress. So Ooh. we're becoming official. Yes. We're getting ahead. We're getting ahead. We've made a plan. We're going to have a library. Now we have somebody who's going to run the library. It's all very good. What an awesome position i know shout out to the librarian of congress that's some rock and roll stuff it's very cool jefferson named the first two librarians who each did double duty as clerk for the house of representatives the two positions were separated in 1855 later on well sure i mean there's only six people in the go everybody right. has to double up it's like john and john you're gonna be in the house of course but then you're also just you're gonna do some time you're going to get some hours in at the library the and you're going to kind of do both because yeah. we only got three other people to run right. this entire country and the goat's busy. And the goat's busy. And you're making $100 a year. So like suck it up. Yeah. Suck it up. Jefferson's contribution to the Library of Congress didn't stop there. In August of 1814, during the War of 1812, British forces burned the Capitol, destroying the still small congressional library. So we've built it. We have oh. people running it. And then the yep. Brits just come in and think they can destroy it. And so they do. It's just like, why the libraries? Why? You know, just leave the library. I mean, if I was a British, I'd be like, oh my God, wait, guys, hold on. Take These are the just books. books. These are just books. Let's respect the books. The books. We're not the... going to burn the books. No, the, we, book, the we books did not. We will circle back and figure out what to do with the books, but there's nobody here. There's nobody here. So let's not destroy here. No. 
Mm. I know. Very annoying. The following year, Congress purchased Jefferson's extensive personal library, including some 6,487 books, for some $23,950, which became the foundation of the new Library of Congress. Okay, flex. Flex, Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson. Uh, 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 With your uh, 6,000 books. What is that? That's like four cents a book? Are you asking me to do complex math right now? I That's am, insane. because we know I cannot do, hold on, we're going to, I'm going to, I want to know how much this is roughly per book. Per book? I said four cents, I mean, because originally I was like four dollars, but I was like, no, that could not possibly work out math wise. This is, but this is very simple math that we can never yeah, do. Yeah, I think which it's, is I would say four, because six times four is 24, right? Oh yeah, it's like, I, oh my gosh, my initial instinct was right, not four cents. It's roughly three dollars and 70 cents a book. Which is still, I feel like, pricey for. Well, you have to imagine these are nice books. It's not like it's not like Thomas Jefferson has been going to the Strand and picking up just (laughs) books for you know a shilling and and compiling you know graphic novels and magazines in his collection. These are like leather bound books of of worth and note. Not paperback copies of To Kill a Mockingbird. Correct. Correct. Although a great book. Shout out. Shout shout out. out. Yeah. I just, I guess I thought it would be less given the amount of inflation since then. But you're correct. They are probably leather bound. Very rare. Yeah. Hyper specific. First editions. Yeah. I mean, TJ was no country bumpkin. No, he did. He like, also like to went live to. He was country. in France. Like this guy's been all over the world collecting books and stuff. Yep, he's got novels in all sorts of languages. I guarantee you. That's right. So unfortunately, though, another fire in 1850, this time accidental, destroyed some 35,000 volumes, including almost two thirds of Jefferson's original contribution. I just. That's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. Why did it take so us so upsetting. long to learn about wood burning? Uh, Why? Ryan started the fire. For those office fans out there. Uh, Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because that's, I mean, 35,000 volumes. I mean, that's just, that's, it hurts. Mm -hmm. It hurts the heart to think about all those books. Yep. If I was Jefferson, I would be pissed. I mean, I I don't think he was alive at this point. But if I was his ghost, I'd be like, are you kidding me? Been kidding me. I gave it this gave to you a like, great deal. Literally, you've had it for maybe 40 years. And and this is it? Oh, come mm-hmm. on. Stop burning fire around paper. How about that? How about How that? How about that? So after the fire, obviously a lot of stuff happened. We are going to talk about how it became and grew into this national library that we know and love it today. So the individual responsible for transforming the Library of Congress into an institution of national significance was Ainsworth Rand Spofford. What a name. I love Ainsworth. Ainsworth. Rand Spofford. I love it. I love it. I Great name. Shout out great to Ainsworth. Name. And any Ainsworths out there. Mm-hmm. Not a name you see much. No. 
Spofford was the Librarian of Congress from 1864 to 1897. Spofford applied Jefferson's philosophy on a grand scale. So he was at this post for 30 plus years and he was Mm -hmm. like, you know what? We're going to do this bigger. We're going to do this better. Strap in. Keep your hands and feet inside the ride at all times. Get ready. Let's blow this up. Yep. He linked the library's legislative and national functions, building a comprehensive collection for both the legislature and the nation. In obtaining greatly increased support from Congress, Spofford employed a combination of logic, flattery, and nationalistic rhetoric. He's like, okay, you're literally, you're you're gorgeous, first and <laughs> foremost. <laughs> first and you foremost, have you seen star. yourself? Mm-hmm. I have to say, this is really working for you. Mm-hmm. Secondly, think about it. A library that has everything an American could want. Come on. Come on. A beauty like you? you don't you, you want? Know. I want. People want. You want what you want, I they want. They want you to help them obtain it because you're gorgeous. 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 In 1867, his acquisitions made the Library of Congress the largest library in the United States. Spofford's other major achievements were the centralization in 1870 of all U.S. copyright activities at the library, which ensured the continuing growth of the collections by stipulating that two copies of every book, pamphlet, map, print, and piece of music registered for copyright be deposited in the library. And construction of a separate building, a 26-year struggle not completed until 1897. So he's like, if you want to write a book, if you want to publish a book, if you're going to have some music, two copies have to come to us. Uh-huh. Done. In case we lose one of them in a fire because, quite frankly, it's Because, quite twice. simply, we won't stop putting an open flame next to parchment. And, and in we a building stop. built of wood. Of wood. Of wood. But don't worry, we have something in the mix. It's just going to take us 20 plus years mm-hmm. to get it up. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Spofford being He knew great. what was up. He's like, Americans, yeah. we're not a bright people. <laughs> Two copies, <laughs> well, please. Well, we're going we're gonna to turn this ship around. That's right. In the early 20th century, the Library of Congress took another great leap forward thanks to the support of President Teddy Roosevelt, who in 1903 issued an executive order transferring the records of the Continental Congress and the personal papers of six founding fathers, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, and James Monroe, to the library from the State Department. So he's like, I'm about to legitimize this even more. I'm about to put these invaluable pieces of history in this library. Bye, State Department. Bye. Bye. We're going to go over here to the very beautiful gingerbread house building and put in these papers. Right. Because they belong here. They're important documents. They belong here. They belong here. They're archives. Mm -hmm. We are now the Central Archive of the United States. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So after that, President Warren G. Harding issued another key executive order in 1921. I love the like unanimously, well, pretty much unanimous. It's like the presidents are the ones who are like, let's do this shit. Yeah. Because well, it's library. like one of those, it's one of those like non-threatening things, right? Yeah. Where it's like, everybody agrees that we all like the library. Right. You know, not necessarily what's contained inside, but the right. idea of the library is a generally apolitical Thing. So if you're right. just trying to do something and be like, look what I did. I right. signed this act that gave the Library of Congress this. And people hear it and they're like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's Okay, great. that's great. That's all okay. That's all good for you. Of course. So Warren G. Harding issued another key executive order in 1921, transferring the original copies of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution to the Library of Congress for safekeeping and to display to the public. Yes. 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 These founding documents would move to their permanent home in the National Archives in 1952. Balancing its legislative, national, and after World War II international roles, the Library of Congress has steadily grown. Historically, its major problem has been lack of space, not lack of support, which seems yeah. to be a common a common theme. We remember the, like... Well, I guess this is different, because the Library of Congress is not going to, like, digitize. There's, like, it's the one thing that, like... Yeah, you kind you of need want space the, for all of this stuff. The hard copies. Yeah, you need the hard copies. It's not like the VA with the sinking floors where we're like, no, okay, no. If we just put all of the records on in a digital platform, yes, it would right. take time and money, but then we could solve a big problem. This is literally just they need space, space, space. The Librarian of Congress, Archibald McLeach, another great name. Great name. Great, great name. name. From 1939 to 1944, was when he was Librarian of Congress, stressed the library's roles as a symbol of democracy and a cultural institution. True. Luther H. Evans, also a good name, not as strong as Archibald, but good. No. He was Librarian of Congress from 1945 to 1953, and he pushed forward the library's bibliographic and international activities. Okay. Love. L. Quincy Mumford, strong, a strong, strong, name. strong. He was Librarian of Congress from 1954 to 1974, and he greatly expanded all of the library's roles, but particularly its bibliographic activities and foreign acquisitions. So we're acquiring from abroad. We've got to acquire. Mm-hmm. 
a new public role for the library began to emerge under the leadership of historian Daniel J. Borston, Librarian of Congress from 1975 to 1987. He emphasized the library's role as a natural cultural resource, which is, I think, how we think about it today. Yeah. That's when I think of Library of Congress, like, um, yes, it's like a cultural hub. Mm-hmm. And he greatly increased the institution's visibility. Yes, publicize, honey. Yes, get some marketing out there. Brand. All publicity is good publicity. Mm -hmm. So by 2016, when Carla Hayden was sworn in as the first woman and first African-American to become librarian of Congress, holy bejesus, that Mm -hmm. is very recent, the library had more than 3,000 people on staff and more than 38 million books and 70 million manuscripts in its catalog. Huge. No wonder they need space. I know. My God. Like SOS. Gotta get them some space. Some space. Okay. Now we have a very big list of my favorite thing in the world, which are fun facts, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts about the Library of Congress. A lot of fun facts today because... It's a place that just has fun facts, you know? It has so many fun facts. Some episodes don't have a lot of fun facts. Sometimes we just get one. But today, we're going to revel in fun facts. We have a lot. They're all coming from the DCist website. And believe it or not, I left some out. That's insane. That's insane because this is like a page and a half of Mm -hmm. fun facts. I know. And I really, I had to cut some out because we did not, we don't, we needed to cut for time. We have to cut for time. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's kick off with fun fact number one. So the library was created to provide books solely for the use of Congress, which it has since transformed from, but that was its original purpose, was to be just something for this one institution. It was originally housed in a spacious central room in the Capitol. A plaque now marks the approximate location of the first library, and it also states grimly, quote, the books in the library. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> oh Could we have phrased this, this a okay, different okay, way? Okay. <laughs> this is, oh, my God. We're so dramatic. Okay. This is what this plaque says in the Capitol. And I quote, the books in the library were used to kindle the flames that destroyed this section of the building in the War of 1812. It's like they're blaming the books. Right. They're like, had the books not been there, we probably wouldn't have lost this portion of the capital. <laughs> but you know what? The books were there. It's all their fault. Also, they were the, the flames for the flames. Oh, my God. I know. We're so dramatic. Was this written by Alexander Hamilton? Because, uh-huh. geez, Louise is this dramatic. Queen. Queen Ham. That's hysterical. Technically, according to the Library of Congress historian John Cole, Public access to the library has been permitted as early as the 1830s because it was in a publicly accessible building, but it wasn't until the opening of reading rooms in the new building in 1897 that the library officially began publicizing access to materials. So nowadays, you can go to the Library of Congress and poke about and go in the reading room and do all the things that you would do in a library. It's very exciting. Be in the gingerbread house. Yes. Be amongst the 38 million books, etc. Next fun fact. Another fire in 1851 ravaged the library's collection 
leading to the design of a fireproof cast iron room in the Capitol. So they're like, hold on. Things keep catching on fire. Yes. What about we just make the whole, all the walls iron? <laughs> Let's just put iron in there. There's no happen. in between. It's either yes, wood. It's just, it's wood or iron. And kindling. Yes. Iron. Iron. We have no other iron. option. A faulty chimney flue took the blame for the devastating blaze on, oh, shame, Christmas Eve in 1851. And that burned more than half the library's 55,000 volume collection, including, as we discussed, two-thirds of Jefferson's library. That led the architect of the Capitol, Thomas U. Walter, to design a new fireproof cast iron room in the Capitol's west front for the library. It opened on August 23, 1853. And Walter also designed the Capitol's cast iron dome. So if you need your iron, go to Thomas U. Walter. Apparently he's got it all. He's got it all. The Ironclad Library was widely admired and drew plenty of tourists. That is, until it was dismantled in 1901 and the cast iron sold for scrap. Oh my god. I know. They were like, ugh, we don't need this anymore. We have light bulbs now. <laughs> Get rid of the iron, make a Ford Fiesta, call it a day. <laughs> like... We spent so much work to save the books for 50 years. And then we're like, yeah. bye. Thank you. Thank bye. you for your service. We have electricity. Anybody want her? We can go back to the wood. Oh my God. Next fun fact. The library completed an underground rapid transit literally. L- 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 this is a tongue twister. Rapid <laughs> transit liter- literary line. Rapid Transit Literary Line. Try saying that three times fast. It's hard. That's hard. In 1895, to ferry books to and from the Capitol. It's the subway for the books. Mm -hmm. Even though the Library of Congress would be located just across the street, a tunnel was constructed and an electric conveyor system developed to easily send books back and forth to the Capitol. Because what a, what a, you don't want to walk. No, I don't want to walk. Nobody wants to walk to get the books across the street. It's too much work. No. Give me a... Build a tunnel Mm -hmm. and shoot it through an elevator like it's at a bank. Yep. A Washington Post article on September 13th, 1895 described the new system. The tunnel, about six feet high and four feet wide, so at... Quote, so as easily to admit a man in case of any tie-up in the rapid transit literary line, end quote, the article explained. And it ran about 1,100 feet. So it's like, we ha- it has to be big enough in case there's a, you know, there's a crash on the interstate. And we Somebody needs go. to go in it. We have to go get the books, separate the books from each other and be like, oh, oh dear, you know, Jane Austen ran into Shakespeare. Oh, good gracious. Let's go clear that up on I-95. <laughs> <laughs> Clean up in the cereal aisle. Mm-hmm. A so-called car could travel the distance in two or three minutes, and Ainsworth Rand Spotford, the librarian of Congress at the time, told the Post that, quote, a book can be received at the Capitol in five minutes after the order is sent from there to the library, end quote. Requests for volumes were sent by pneumatic tubes. I mean, it's pretty quick. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of like for the time a, very, a pretty impressive yeah. feat of engineering. It's it it really is like being at a bank. Yeah, where you just put the, the thing, thing in the tube bank. and it's froom, froom. Later, the John Adams Building was also connected to the main building by pneumatic tube system, which enabled books to be placed in leather pouches and whisked across the street <laughs> in an impressive twenty eight seconds. It's just like boom, 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 shoom, shoom. That's very bah, fast. Ta-ta. It's very fast. I'm very impressed. This is yeah. eight, nine, 1895. 28 seconds. Shoot. Yeah. But. Oh. I know. I'm already it's mad. so I'm disappointing. I'm already mad at this note. The original book tunnel was lost in the 2000s when precious subterranean space was needed for the underground capital visitor center. And we have been there. And I would argue you do not need that. No, I am no. mad because I, I did so not know mad. that we had to sacrifice this ingenious system for lines for the visitor center, so that people can get in line. Also, why is it to be underground? Put it above ground, right? Do you know There's what I mean? Space there. Hey, put it above ground, right? I'm mad. That's upsetting. I know it's so annoying. People can stand outside. Cool. We had to stand outside to get into the Supreme Court. In the rain. We did. We stood in the rain eating Starbucks back before when I was still on regular birth control and I was on the two days where I wasn't on estrogen. And it was then during that trip that I realized my body did not enjoy estrogen withdrawal. Yeah. Yeah. It was a a sketchy. It was a long wait outside. But you know what? We did it. I would have happily stood outside so that we could preserve the book tubes. Same. That's all I'm saying. That's all you're saying. Next fun fact. The position of the Librarian of Congress requires a presidential appointment. In 1802, President Thomas Jefferson made the Librarian of Congress an appointed position. The Senate only began confirming the president's choice of librarian in 1897. Love. Love. As a 1984 Library of Congress information bulletin explains, quote, Presidents thus have a genuine opportunity to shape and influence the Congressional Library, noting that Jefferson and the Roosevelts were among the chief executives who greatly strengthened the library's national and cultural roles. I love it. I love it. I mean, it makes sense. I don't have any qualms with that. No. Seems legit. Yeah. Next fun fact. The library adds more than 10,000 items to its collection each working day. Insane. I don't understand. Well, I guess if you've got 3,000 people working for you and they're each doing three to four books a day. Is that the math? That's the math. I think that's the math, right? Yeah, I don't know. Three, six, nine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like three to four a day that each person, if they're all there working full time, are are doing. So they're taking Mm -hmm. 10,000 items into its collection each working day. But they receive 15,000 items every working day. Who is writing that much? I don't know. It's not. It's not me. <laughs> you know, I write a fair amount, but it, I should. I have yet to submit to the Library of Congress. I think they need my work. They do. I'm very they humble. Do. And I do as well. Thank you. But those numbers don't just include books, nor is everything in English, as about half of its serial and book collections are in foreign languages. Sure. Yeah. 
The library keeps audio materials, manuscripts, maps, microforms, sheet music, and photographs, to name a few. It also maintains the National Film Registry, which preserves such treasures as The Big Lebowski, Jurassic Park, <laughs> and The Sex Life of the Polyp for future just... generations to come. What a list. I love this. What a list. Of I our, love it. Our I three, love... uh, three, you know, just three examples today. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I, I was like, you know somebody was sitting down and they were like, what are the three most different movies you could possibly imagine? Yeah. To like really differentiate the different yes. tastes of Americans. Right. The vast array of films that the mm-hmm. National, that the Library mm-hmm. of Congress contains. It even collected public tweets for years, as Wamu reported in 2017, but went on to note that as of January 1st, 2018, the library began acquiring tweets on a, quote, very selective basis. We really don't need the tweets. No. We don't need really the tweets. really don't need the tweets. No. There are few tweets that you need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very few. Very few. Okay, last fun fact. Do you want to have access to the library's vast trove of knowledge and books and manuscripts yes. and all of that? Then you yes. just need... Yes! You just need a reader identification card. Anyone 16 and older with a reader identification card may access the library, though some rooms require researchers to be at least 18... But it isn't like a neighborhood library. Visitors can't remove items from the reading rooms or the library buildings. I would think not. Sure. Take out one of the two copies of Jurassic Park. Can't can't lose it. Bring it back when you're done. Can't lose that. Shoot. Mm -mm. Very important. The card is valid for two years from its issue, and you can pre-register for your card up to two weeks in advance online. So if you want to go visit, if you're going to D.C., and you, you want to go. visit the Library of Congress, yep. up to two weeks before your trip, you can put in essentially an application. You can pre-register for your library card, and you can go sit in the Library of Congress and read things. And read things. Read dusty books. Yeah. Yes. I love that. I can't wait for my own experience at the Library of Congress, yes. which I'm sure will happen at some point. It's a cool place. Yeah. I think it's, honestly, it's just one of those institutions in D.C. where I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No notes. No notes. I have no notes and I have no, no qualms. I'm just like, yeah, keep doing your thing. Maybe maybe get another building. Yes. But, you know, to, to kind of expand it into. Right. But other than that, I think it's doing great. I think it's doing great. And I feel like it seems like they're pretty efficient. I mean, I'm sure there's a yeah. backlog of some kind, but... Considering they get 15,000 submissions a day and they're going through 10,000 a day. Right. Like, I don't know. Put some of those people to work in other departments. That seems pretty efficient to me. I know. Shoot. Love that kind of efficiency. Yep. You know, in D.C. So with all that said, that is our episode on the Library of Congress, y'all. Yeah. As always... If you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us. We love you so, so much, and we will see you next Wednesday. Goodbye.